Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Chichi Agorum. Chichi is a certified Enneagram teacher and author of the recent book, The Enneagram for Black Liberation, Return to Who You Are Beneath the Armor You Carry. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Tyler Bradford Wright. Tyler is a singer-songwriter from Missouri. You can get connected with Chichi and Tyler and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of a people's theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. What we're looking for Are we fighting for the depths Or are we back to the shores Today we have Chichi Agorum, and Chichi, you are a certified Enneagram coach, and you also do lots of other things in the world. You also went to seminary at one point, and I, I'm sure you're, there are so many other things that you do in the world, uh, but who is Chichi Agorum to Chichi Agorum? <laughs> well, to myself, I am a human on a journey to continue learning what it means to be more human. I'm a certified Enneagram teacher and practitioner with the narrative Enneagram. I did go to seminary at a point in time. I tend to block it out of my memory, but (laughs) (laughs) that's where I got my uh, master's in clinical counseling from. And yeah, I do do a lot of other things, but I love to write and I love to work with people and I love food. Those are all the things that are important. Ooh, you're you're a foodie. I love food. I love to eat. I used to say before the pandemic that I also love to cook, but I've learned since 2020 that I what I love is eating because now I'm sick of cooking for myself every day. <laughs> you like pe- other somebody people else, cooking for you. Yes, yes. That if someone sense. else wants to cook for me, I am here to eat all day. So. so I'm a little bit of a foodie myself and I have like a whole, I live in the Twin Cities and I have like a whole ranking system of like the best food and best ra- restaurants in the Twin Cities. What would you say is the best restaurant you've ever been to? Not necessarily the best meal, but the best restaurant. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Or whatever one is the first one that pops to mind. No. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, <laughs> trying to think back like two years ago because there've been less. I did go to a really beautiful restaurant at the start of this year. So in terms of space, like a rooftop, the mm. the walking in feels like you're walking through like a secret garden. It's all wow. just beautiful flowers everywhere and then you have like the gorgeous view of the city. The food was good. The problem is I got food poisoning, so I it's just really a oh, no. <laughs> The the memory is a little tainted, but the space itself was beautiful. Oh, I great. think about another. I'll leave it at, at that one okay. for now. Is that I, somewhere I, I, I saw, uh, at least on the book that you might live in L.A.? Is that in L.A. that you're talking LA. about? Yes, it is okay. somewhere in L.A. I don't want to shout them out because, you know, it's really beautiful sense. and the food was good, but 
just I guess something happened. You're eating raw fish because it's a seafood place. Right. It's a, yeah. That makes sense. Let's chat about your book. So you recently wrote a book called Enneagram for Black Liberation. And like I mentioned before we started recording, I think it's the most important Enneagram book I've ever read. It's absolutely incredible. Just out of curiosity, is this the first book you've ever written? <laughs> it's the first book I've, that I have ever written that's been published. That's been published. I have been okay. writing books for fun since I was a kid. But oh, this is I love the first. That. That's yeah. lovely. Well, so at least with your first published book, what did you learn uh, learn about yourself while you're writing your very first published book? A lot. I think maybe the most important thing I learned about myself is that I am, it is possible for me to, or maybe I should say I am capable of being really structured mm. <laughs> when it comes to creativity in particular. Because prior to this book, because I had a deadline, you know, I, I I wrote it in six months. That was the agreement with the publisher. And so while I was working and and the pandemic was happening and there was just so much else going on. And normally with my creative process, I just kind of wait for the muses to show up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't do that with this. I have I have six months. I got to get this done. I have a certain number of words. And so I had a schedule. I wrote Monday, Wednesday, Friday for two hours at the same time at the same spot, just sat down and, you know, made a practice of not going back to read what I wrote the last time because I love editing. I really do. (laughs) But that doesn't help you finish writing (laughs) a manuscript because you just keep editing. And I, I, I wrote with Frequently, I wrote with one of my best friends who um, is also a writer. So we just kind of had our own little Zoom writing room. And that felt really lovely to not, because I feel like sometimes with creativity and with writing in particular, it's so isolated. Mm -hmm, So being mm -hmm. able to do that with somebody else, even though we were working on completely different projects was was fun. So I think, yeah, the the structure piece, I would also say um, I learned about myself that a lot of the work I've put into my own personal growth really, really took, you know, oh, like it's so not, cool. I think if I was writing this book, I don't know, five years ago, there would be so much, it, it would have been very hard for me to finish. Mm-hmm. I would have been so preoccupied with thinking about how it would be received and what people mm-hmm. expect of me and um, all of those things that would have kept my authentic voice from coming through because I wanted to, I would have wanted to curate something that was appealing to other people. Mm -hmm. And not to say that that didn't come up at all during this process, but it was, it was just like, it was a quieter voice and I had more tools and more practice in being able to say, I understand why you're here. And (laughs) this is, this is not, I'm not going to center that, Mm -hmm. that motivation. So that felt nice to be like, I'm approaching this in a way that I am proud of, um, which helps me celebrate the work I've put in to get Mm -hmm. to this place. I love that. I'm currently in the middle of writing my thesis for my master's program, and I had a very scheduled uh, schedule as well, where or structured schedule as well, where, yeah, I was writing mostly on the weekends and I would Mm -hmm. make sure that on Saturdays and Sundays, like that was my writing time and I I would clear out my schedule for it. And so... Yeah, I, it, it made me appreciate the process much more just because I wasn't procrastinating and I didn't feel like I was stressed to like meet some sort of deadline. So, yeah, I, I can see how like you relate to the work that you've done when you don't feel like you're in a panic mode about it or you're, you don't feel like you're in an unhealthy spot with it. Mm-hmm. 
And then, and then I personally, I don't know if this is true for you, but when I procrastinate, then I end up dreading the thing, even yes. though it might be something yes. I love, but I'm like, why am I writing this book? You know? So I didn't want to build that sort of relationship with it. And, and right. I, I feel like I did a good job with that. Well, that's great. Okay. So that's something you learned about yourself. I'm sure even though you are arguably an expert on the Enneagram, I mean, you are a certified Enneagram teacher and everything, but I'm sure in the process of writing this book, there was maybe something you learned about the system of the Enneagram or maybe even like the history of the Enneagram or maybe something else about the Enneagram that you didn't know before prior to writing. What was that thing if if there was one? Great question. The first thing that comes to mind is actually not in the, like, I don't, I don't know if it made it into the book. There was a lot that we cut out, but I had a whole section written about the history of the Enneagram, Mm, um, mm -hmm. especially as it pertains to communities of color and learning about that from, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to say either the title or the author's name wrong. I'll, I'll look this up, but um, there's a, there's a book I used as reference and she did an incredible job of chronicling you know, the starts, like almost from the the spark of the idea of what now is the system of the Enneagram. But I was struck by... Is it buried somewhere on your bookshelf there? I know. I have my books organized by by color and I know it's a white book and the white books are right next to me. So I'm like, I probably could find it it's right now. It's probably right there. Yeah. But um, I, I was struck by how much of the wisdom and um, traditions of communities of color were what really helped form the system that we use now, which in our Western society is often used and talked about by white folks. Mm -hmm. And so that really, that struck me and, and, and read, I was reading that as I was starting to write the book. And so I feel like it reinforced for me the need to center communities of color in these conversations. Right. Well, if you find the title of that book, I'm super fascinated. Uh, I, this is a part of the history of the Enneagram I'm totally unfamiliar with, so I would love to learn a little bit more about that. Yes, I'll send it to you. Yeah, and maybe we can even include it in like the episode description so if people want to further explore it too, they, they can. So I'm guessing that knowing my listeners, I'm guessing most of them know about the Enneagram already, but for the handful of people who have been living under a rock for the last five years, what is the Enneagram and how does it work? The way I describe it is the Enneagram is a, is a system, it's a map of nine ways of being in the world that show us nine structures that we tend to become over-reliant on in an effort to find safety and love and worth and belonging. The Enneagram kind of shows us like these, these I think of them as survival strategies that we create and that we use to navigate the world, to protect ourselves from pain and from suffering and from sadness and all of that. But it shows us those things so that we can learn to start creating space between the survival strategies and the fullness of who we are so that we can come home to who we mm. really are. So rather than, in, rather than um, interacting with the Enneagram as a way to describe a person, like you are this type. Um, we talk about in the narrative tradition about how you're not a type, you have a type. So I'm Chi Chi. Mm. I have a type structure that I use to navigate the world and I've used it for my whole life to navigate the world, to protect myself. Um, but that type structure is not the entirety of who I am. Mm. And the more I build awareness of that type structure and can create space, then I am able to have more freedom and choice to access 
the rest of who I am that's not just the survival strategy. Yeah, it's sometimes it feels like, especially with like a lot of the memes and the popularity of the Enneagram kind of coming to prominence over the last five years or so, it feels like a lot of people think of the Enneagram as if they are a certain type rather than they have a type. Um, but one of the most helpful ways I've learned about the Enneagram over the last couple of years is that we all sort of exhibit all the different types of the Enneagram, but yet we still kind of have this have this core type that we might most rely on most often mm-hmm. throughout our lives. Is, am, I, am I thinking of that correctly? That like yeah, we, we do exhibit all of the sort of types, um, mm-hmm. but there's one that we have that kind of is more co- core to how we've exhibited throughout our lives. Yes. I, I, I think of it as like we have access to all the other eight types and we can use them as resources, but there is one that's just primary that you don't have Mm -hmm. to think about it's autopilot it's just where you naturally go and that one doesn't change over the course of your life yeah in just terms of like the system of the enneagram there's there's so many there's so much complexity to it but one of the other main things to maybe keep in mind is wings like how, how do wings work with the enneagram and like what what does that mean to have like a wing so wings are kind of like neighbors that that live next to you to whatever your primary type is. And so it's easy to go over and borrow salt if mm-hmm. you run out or borrow, you know, whatever. Um, it doesn't, doesn't change very much about the core pieces of your type structure. It just adds a little, a little extra flavor or mm. it influences the way certain aspects of your core type structure are played out. Mm. So people, you know, people talk about, I, I don't put a lot of emphasis on wings, I should say. Oh, um, when I was learning this system in the narrative tradition, one of the things I remember one of the faculty members saying was that they had noticed people tend to use wings as a way to discharge the uncomfortable aspects of type. So mm. rather than rather than the practice of you know owning and accepting and being with, they had noticed people kind of discharging it on. Oh, that's my three wing, or that's my five. Wing. I see. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so in all things with the Enneagram and in life, our goal is balance. And so, you know, I've also heard the imagery of, of thinking of the wings as related to like a bird. And we don't want to just have one wing that's developed. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes it harder to fly. So we talk about in the narrow tradition, using the wings and all, all the other numbers really as resource points. What can I borrow from you know, how can I resource myself from this wing on this side and this wing on this side that helps me to be more integrated and more balanced? Mm. So we've talked about core types. We've ca- talked a little bit about wings. There's also another part of the Enneagram system that's important that it has to deal with like our bodies, our minds and our hearts. And there's kind of these different triads that the Enneagram is kind of working around. Can you talk a little bit about the triads and why they're important to the Enneagram? Yes. So the Enneagram is divided into three centers of intelligence, which we all have the head center, the heart center, and the body center. And wherever your primary type is located, whichever center your your type is located in is the center that you are most familiar with the center you overuse. Um, If you think of like three volume knobs, it's like the one that's cranked all the way Mm. to the top and the others might be a lot lower. Like I said, we all have all three. Mm-hmm. And in our, you know, in this society, a lot of Western cultures, we tend to prioritize the intelligence of the head as like the primary, you know, we know things, we understand things all through our heads. 
in reality, our hearts and our bodies hold a lot of wisdom too. And so again, the goal is balance and integration Mm -hmm. and being able to utilize the wisdom of all three centers in order to help us live a more integrated life. But the centers also kind of describe the way that we process and receive information. So heart types, types that are found in the heart center of the Enneagram tend to use their heart as a way to gather information. They use their hearts as a way to make sure that they're in connection with people, that they're seen in a good light for who they are and what they do. Um, all of that external information from the outside is processed through the heart space. Whereas for a head type, um, all of that information is processed through the headspace. Does it make sense? Is it logical? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of analysis and planning and that sort of thing. And then the body types use their bodies as a way to perceive what's happening in the environment. So it's very binary. There is no, not that there is no thought to it, but there is a very quick body judgment of, mm-hmm. I like this. I don't like this. I feel safe. I don't feel safe. Very intuitive. Very intuitive. Thank you. That's a great word for it. But we all have access to all three. And so the invitation is to, I'm a heart type, and my invitation is to not forget the wisdom of my head and my body in favor of just my heart, because Mm -hmm. then I am not able to be fully integrated if I do that. Mm -hmm. And so the last part of the system that I just want to briefly go over, again, for people who might be unfamiliar, is these ideas of like integration points and disintegration points. So Mm. within the Enneagram, like whatever your core type is, there's a certain integration point you have and a certain disintegration point you have. Can you talk a little bit about what those mean? Yes, actually, this is a tiny soapbox that I have. And and I was in a I was in one of our um, narrative enneagram courses this week, and one of the core faculty said this. I didn't I wasn't aware that the people who created that language of integration disintegration Rizzo and Hudson don't even teach that anymore. But it's like really, oh, really? out there in the world. Yeah, it's so, already out there. Wow, interesting. I I was gonna say I didn't really notice it really in your book at all, but I was curious yeah. maybe maybe I'd missed it or something. No, it's not there. Um, I don't I don't use that language of in so for people who don't know the 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 language essentially communicates that in one direction your type is integrating is moving into a quote-unquote healthier space and then moving in another direction they're disintegrating moving into an unhealthy space i think that that introduces language or language around shame and Mm. judgment because in one in in one day, you could be moving in multiple directions, you know, moving towards your security point or your stress point multiple times throughout the day. And who's to say that that's unhealthy, right? Like mm-hmm. I use the language of being aware, being awake, being more um, conscious mm-hmm. rather than integrating or disintegrating. But in the narrative tradition, we use the language of stress and security as opposed to integration and disintegration, mm-hmm. meaning that when you are feeling stressed, there's a number, there's a line uh, on which you travel as a type in the area to when you're feeling stressed versus when you're feeling secure, there's another part of the chart that you move towards when um, your type structure is feeling more secure, but that all of these things are resources for us to use. One of my colleagues and fellow Enneagram teachers, Abby Robbins, talks about how 
thinking about these things as resources, all of them as resources, mm-hmm. allows us to see the benefits of moving into what we would traditionally call disintegration, but see, you know, like what, what can a two, for example, learn from being in the eight space rather than immediately judging that as bad or I'm disintegrating or I must be unhealthy. Mm-hmm. What can I learn about what can I learn from being in that eight space? Maybe I can take away from this more assertiveness, more of an ability to say, this is what I need. And that's actually a good thing as opposed Mm -hmm. to, you know, the binary of one is good and one is bad. So one of the central themes throughout your book is that you talk about each Enneagram type as kind of like a piece of armor. Can you talk about why you use that metaphor? And yeah, like, can you just talk a little bit about why you use that metaphor of armor? Yeah. So in in my work, my personal work with the Enneagram, I found that the most freeing thing for me was realizing that I wasn't my type and that and realizing that I use my type. You know, it's mm. like a it serves a function for me. Mm-hmm. And I started to think about in, in the conversations we would have around what growth and change and health and all that looks like within this kind of work, there was a lot of of talk about it looking like being less like your type, you know, like you needed it when you were younger, you don't need it as much anymore. And when you're growing, then you don't really look like that type anymore. And I was thinking about the ways in which um, our types protect us from pain and how for certain people, for certain groups of people, the threats to safety and well-being and belonging and all that still exist. It's not just a, this was true when I was 10 and not true anymore. And so when I think of armor, I think of the, the imagery was helpful for me because it's something that is separate from the person right? I can put on armor. And, you know, I let people like imagine whatever, however you want to, whether it's a suit you put on, whether it's a shield, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but there's just this generally understood concept that it is something separate from me. The armor protects me. And that I think is really important because like we talked about at the beginning, people often talk about the Enneagram types, like I am my type, but, but creating that space to say, there's me. And then there's this armor that I use is helpful, even in just naming the difference between self and armor. And then the other part of it is that you don't always need armor. Like you're not mm. always, you know, in the battlefield. And so being able to create the space between the self and the armor allows for choice. Do I need it in this conversation with Mason? Then I can put it up. Do I not need it? Then I can put it down. But if I'm not aware that it's something separate from me, then I just run on autopilot all the time, have my armor on all the time and never actually get to access ease and rest. I love that idea around this like sort of differentiation between yourself and your type. And part of the reason why I really like this is one of the things that I've struggled for a really long time as I've, you know, at least like a certain kind of idea around the uh, around the Enneagram is that you are your type or whatever. And I always struggled with that because I, especially with the philosophy and theology I'm really into, I always had this sense that maybe we actually have multiple selves that might all be authentic to who we are. And I could totally be wrong. You're, you're much more in this world than I am. But like, I think like family systems really thinks about ourselves in that way, like that we have multiple selves that we're constantly sort of trying on and, and putting on in different situations, depending on where we're at. And it really seems unhelpful then for the Enneagram, 
a certain, at least a certain idea around the Enneagram is that we have a true self. And I just really struggled with that, that, that we have maybe this like sort of true self. So I love that you have this differentiation between our type and ourselves, because that way we're not sort of pigeonholed in thinking that we have one true self that is the most authentic of who we are. Yes, I love that. And I would say too, because, you know, we use the language of the essential self within the Enneagram. I think of the type as that pigeonhole, you know, like the box. I have to be this one way. But in my experience of building more connection to my essential self, it is far more expansive than just the the singular story of this is who I have to be. And within that essential self, I have freedom to be I have freedom, period, right? To be all these different things um, without feeling like I have to, my story is I have to be this thing in order to be okay, in order to survive. And so I really appreciate that. Yeah, this might be getting too much in the weeds of nerdiness, but like I'm really into process thought and I'm not sure if you're familiar with process theology or process thought at all, but essentially process thought um, is a rejection of like, um, substance metaphysics, which basically says like a thing has like its own like substance and being rather than and any sort of thing is actually always in a process of becoming. It's always in a constant of change and evolution, hence process thought or process theology. Everything is not a thing in, in itself. Like it's always in, in a process of becoming. And that's why like I really struggled with this idea of like having like some sort of like true self when it comes to Enneagram types. And so I love that you're like making this differentiation because I think it allows for us to think of ourselves as always a process in becoming and in changing rather than pigeonholing ourselves into one certain type. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So obviously because of the title of your book, you think that the Enneagram can obviously be a tool for liberation. And I, I think that's ultimately what the Enneagram should be used for, is liberation of all different types of people. Why do you think that the Enneagram can be liberating, especially for Black people? Um, I think... The, the most powerful and, and, and most liberatory part of working with the Enneagram for me has been in what, what we were just talking about, being able to create that space between mm. being able to re- recognize that I am not my, I am more than my survival strategies that mm. I have used, you know, to, to get this far in life. Because 
when there isn't that understanding, that knowledge, that space, then we start to see ourselves as just the survival strategies. And there is less access to the actual freedom and rest and ease and joy that we are fighting for. And I think that part of part of the liberatory aspect of this is, is also the there's so much there's so much work required of black folks to just be, to just mm. survive, right? In 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 this system and in this culture. And this is why, you know, people talk about rest as revolutionary. Which mm-hmm. it shouldn't be, but but it is. Um, shout out to the NAP ministry. Shout out to the NAP ministry. She is doing. She's awesome. Delicious. I'd love to get her on my podcast. I would love that. I hope you do. But, you know, there's th- that idea of resting really struck me, especially as it comes to the internal, you know, not just resting from external experience of supremacy or capitalism or whatever, but the internal striving that we have to do in order to, or we believe we have to do in order to survive and what it looks like to actually access rest internally. Mm. And I think that the way that the Enneagram intersects with that is being able to understand being able to have yeah better language for my survival strategies so that I have more access to the fullness of who I am separate mm. from the things I have to do to survive white supremacy. Because otherwise, then my identity, my understanding of my identity becomes wrapped up in resistance as opposed to liberation and mm. freedom. And what else could mm-hmm. be true that is not wrapped up in just resisting these systems of oppression? I love that part because I think one of the things that is often missed in these conversations around systems of oppression is obviously materially it really affects who uh, it affects oppressed people but it also really affects the kind of personalities that they exhibit in the world and like who they are um, as a person and so like something like white supremacy or sexism or even homophobia tries to socialize those different types of groups of people, oppressed people, into certain ways of being in the world. And therefore, they may not feel like they're living their full, authentic personalities even. And so I love that you are creating or you're talking about the Enneagram as a tool for them to allow us to discover who they really are outside of those systems of oppression and the way that those systems of oppression socialize them and pigeonhole them into certain boxes they might not actually be. Absolutely. And I think with that, you know, our work is one of the things I hope to communicate through the book is that our work is different based on the different identities that we hold, right? Your work is different than my work as it comes to Enneagram and and, and liberation work. But with that being said, there are multiple layers of armor for people who hold marginalized identities, right? So there's my regular armor of my Enneagram type. But then there are all the other armors that I still have to put on every day existing as a Black woman in America. And the same for pe- for queer folks, for trans folks, for people who it's it's a nice little kumbaya thought to be like, well, you just need to you just need to trust, you know, that the world is that like you, you deserve love and you deserve belonging. And so all of that is available to you and you don't need to show up armored and you can just be vulnerable. But that's nice in theory and in practicality for people to actually survive, we do need the armor. So there's all these layers of armor that people are holding and carrying that make it harder to access 
the rest and the ease and the joy and the Mm -hmm. freedom. And if we don't bring conscious awareness to it, we start to think that, you know, those things are just part of who we are or the Mm -hmm. entirety of who we are. In um, My Grandmother's Hands, the book Mm -hmm. by Resma Manikin, he talks about, you know, how what starts as a response to trauma is then passed down over generations. And Mm -hmm. eventually it starts looking like, we just call it culture. Oh, culturally, this is what we do. And Mm -hmm. we don't recognize that this was actually, this is a response to trauma that has been passed down through the generations. Mm -hmm. It's not actually by choice (laughs) that Mm -hmm. this is what we want to be doing. It's just what we've always done in response to trauma. And I think about that in terms of our relationship to Enneagram types where they bring blessings and they bring gifts. And, you know, there are many things to love and appreciate about our types. And when we are not conscious and awake, then it becomes like, oh, this is just, this is the personality. You know, this is just my personality. This is just Mm -hmm. the way I am. And my invitation is to ask what else is true? What else is there that's, that's true about your fuller identity? and not just these um, survival strategies or armor. That's amazing. One of the other things I loved about the book is that you go through each Enneagram type talking about not only describing each Enneagram type, but also what liberation might look for that type. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, as quickly as we can, I, I, we don't have you know all the time in the world, but for each one of these types, can you talk a little bit about what liberation might look like for for that particular type? So like what what would liberation look like maybe for a type one? Mm. Well, you know, the way I talk about it in the book is using the holy ideas. So maybe that'll be the easiest way for yeah. me to to answer that question. But I think for one, liberation could include accessing more peace and serenity on a regular basis, which, which is, you know, part of that is accepting things as they are, where the armor of the one wants you to make things the way that you believe they Mm -hmm. should be. And it's harder for us to access peace and serenity when we're trying constantly to change reality. What about for twos then? For twos, it would be the freedom to be needy to allow themselves to show up just like everybody else with needs and trust that um, other people showing up for them can help build relationship as opposed to end it. Absolutely. What about threes? Sorry, we're just going to go right through the... the, Yeah, it's like rapid, rapid questions. Right. For the three, liberation can look like the, the, like being, actually being able to just be Mm. and not feel like you have to do in order to earn approval and love. How about fours? For fours, liberation can look like remembering being connected to the truth of your worth as something that cannot be taken away from you, which then frees you up to be exactly who you are rather than the version of yourself you think will earn you love. I I have a four type, so I feel feel, feel preached to right now. (laughs) What about fives? Uh, For fives, I think liberation would look like being able to access more generosity and abundance, being able to shift from the the story of scarcity into being able to access the generativity that that exists Mm. for for all of us. Mm. How about sixes? 
For sixes, it would be being able to access the courage that allows you to show up for life rather than spend so much time planning ahead to protect yourself from life. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that deep trust in, I can meet this present moment and I have what I need to meet this present moment. Lovely. What about sevens? For sevens, ooh, for sevens. I think liberation <laughs> could look like a lot of things. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of stillness right now, stillness and constancy. Mm. Um, so the ability to not run away from the present moment in favor of like whatever could be fun in the future, but the ability to practice stillness and find peace in the present moment, mm. which allows them to really fully enjoy the present moment instead of mm-hmm. leaving it. It reminds me, uh, there, I don't know if you're familiar with a person named Rob Bell, but he 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 has a seven type and he wrote a book like five or six or however many years ago now about presence. And it was because he had a really bad head injury. And for a while, because of his head injury, there was for months, I, I think, that he literally like could not think about the future. So he didn't worry and he couldn't think about the past either. So he didn't have like anxiety about the past. And so he lit in, in fact, he, I think he has a moment moment in the book where he could see the dust floating around in the air. And he just for like hours could just sit there watching the dust. And I'm like, this is a, this is a person who has a type seven that's doing this. This is pretty great. So anyway, Yeah. So all, all it takes for sevens is just get a massive uh, concussion and you'll be good. To go. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, how about eights? Um, for eights, liberation could look like the ability to be open, to practice openness, kind of like the, with the innocence of a child, allowing yourself to learn from multiple truths as opposed to feeling like you have to assert your own truth in every situation. Lovely. And lastly, but not least, how about nines? Not least at all. For nines, liberation, I think, could look like really, truly believing that the love you believe everybody else is deserving of, you are just as deserving of, right? Mm. Like being able to see yourself as equal to everyone else and to show up from that space. Lovely. So because my podcast is technically a theology podcast, I do feel obligated to ask this question. So the Enneagram does have its roots in spiritual traditions, and to this day, it's often used in a lot of spiritual communities. So while this book is not necessarily about the Enneagram and spirituality, it, but it is you know, mostly about liberation, but I'm sure there's obviously spiritual connections to this in the way that you think about the Enneagram and liberation. So with that said, how do you see the Enneagram as a tool for specifically spiritual liberation? Mm. <laughs> um, great question. I I think it's similar, you know, like I think that the a lot of my answers would be the same as what I've said mm-hmm. earlier for doing personal work with the Enneagram. But I also think about how I I don't remember who said this. I want to credit the right person, but I remember, but you know, how we how we do one thing is how we do everything. And so I think often uh of how we project our type, the views of our types onto the divine within whatever tradition, right, that we, we operate in. And then we start to, we start to relate to our version of God, the divine through our own lens. And we, again, if we, if we're not bringing conscious awareness to it, we think, oh, that's, this is who God is. But in reality, it's, this is the lens that I have, because this is the lens that I see everything else Mm. in the world through. So this is also, so I think, I think that, that, part of liberation within spirituality can also look like 
being investigating and being curious about the ways in which we do that and the ways in which my stories about God are actually just the story of my type and, and, and expanding, expanding my understanding, my experience of the divine beyond my type and my survival strategies. Um, And also being curious about the ways in which I expect the divine to relate to me based on how my type, you know, so I'm going to say like for the four, Mm -hmm. right. There is the, the core fear is abandonment. And so a lot of the, a lot of the way the type shows up, I'm, I'm also a four. So this is, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from that space. Yes. Um, A lot of the way that the type solidarity, solidarity, solidarity (laughs) is to create this image of authenticity with the hopes that, you know, I stand out enough. I bring something significant and impressive and interesting enough that makes you want to stay with me. So how does that impact the way that you relate to the divine? Mm. How do you show up in that relationship in a way that is hoping to protect yourself from abandonment? Again, it's probably there because how we do one thing is how we do everything. So it's about bringing that to conscious awareness so that we can expand that relationship and not be trapped in these boxes. Mm-hmm. We just need to put a pulpit right in front of you and you're ready to go. Like, this is <laughs> unbelievable. This is great. Wonderful. I'm technically a pastor's kid, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not like it's unfamiliar territory for you. Yes. Yes. Uh, last question. And again, we've maybe been chatting or we have been chatting a lot about this, but uh, just very succinctly, how do you hope the Enneagram for Black Liberation inspires and liberates people? Mm. I really hope that it helps people feel seen. Um, it helps give people language that's accessible for their patterns and their habits, but also invites them into being curious about who they are outside of those patterns and habits. Mm. Um, I hope that it helps people access more, even just from that, that curiosity, right? Like accessing more freedom, even just from the realization that I am more than these patterns and habits and strategies to survive. And I really do hope that it allows for us all to, to be able to access more softness and ease and rest, especially in a world that can feel like a dumpster fire every day. I think Mm -hmm. my hope is that it feels empowering to know that I can still access and honor and be with the soft parts of me, even though I live in a world that still requires me Mm -hmm. to be armored up sometimes. Mm -hmm. I remember the way you ended the book talking about there was like a viral video of a black man frolicking around. And that's such a great way to end the book, to talk about somebody who's who who's entering into who they really are and able to, you know, regardless of all the systems of oppression that may mm-hmm. be affecting their life, that they're able to just simply be free. And it's amazing that you uh, I, I just love the way that you ended the book with that. Thank you. That's 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 the visual that I want. I'm like, I want us frolicking. I want us free. I want us at ease, because if the fight continues, which it will, then rather than having the mindset of we have to wait until this battle is won before we can rest, it allows us to practice finding that ease and that softness and that joy right now as fortification for the continued Mm -hmm. fight. Love that. Chi Chi, last question. How can listeners get connected to you in your work? You can find me on Instagram. I will start posting more frequently (laughs) Um, at the Enneagram for Black Liberation. Um, You can also find me at chichiagoram.com. And yeah, 
and you can, the book is available, you know, for pre-order or whenever this comes out. So you can order it wherever you like to buy your books and online. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting a little bit about it. Again, I'm somebody who has been pretty invested in the Enneagram for a while. And so this was, this is the kind of book that I was like, I hope that this exists at some point. And all of a sudden here it shows up to my doorstep and I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to be able to chat with this person. So again, I think it's the most important Enneagram book I've ever read. And I think anybody who really wants to learn a little bit more about themselves uh, and even learn about those whom they love, this is the book for for them to, to read. So thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was lovely. If you would like to connect with Chi-Chi and Tyler and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>